Business Minds, presented by the Business Journals of Florida. Brought to you by Tico People's Gas, at the heart of Florida's energy. In this special extended holiday edition of our series, Orlando Business Journal Editor-in-Chief Sean McCrory welcomes Parkway Venture Capital Managing Partner and Co-Founder Greg Hill to share his inspirational story from tennis phenom to VC leader. Well, thank you for joining us, Greg. I'm so excited to have you joining us on the podcast today as your story really is one of the most remarkable I have heard beginning on some of the most revered tennis courts in the world and landing here in Winter Park, founding one of the most successful VC firms in Parkway. So let's start at the beginning of that journey. Tell us just how good of a tennis player were you? <laughs> I guess I was pretty good. <laughs> so let's go back to the beginning. I I did move to the Voluntary Tennis Academy when I was 10 years old. I actually, I left home when I was eight to a small academy in the mountains of North Carolina interesting story. My father, uh, my background is my dad was a really amazing athlete, sort of dominated high school sports, kind of the public leagues in the Carolinas and a private school, not too far away, maybe like an hour and a half away, uh, recruited him to bring him in kind of like the ringer, I guess you would say, because they wanted to win. And it was really a big opportunity because he really didn't come from anything. And he was out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, he convinced his parents to, to go there. And that was where he he just kind of shined, had a great career. And he met my mom because my mom was a cheerleader from one of the teams, you know, across town. And it wasn't long after that I was born. So they were just kids when they had me. But, you know, it was a different time. Not exactly. My dad didn't really have the support that he needed in many ways. So he didn't really get to, you know, advance his career. So I think when I was born, I had a ball in my hand from day one, I guess you'd say rolling balls to me, uh, playing sports. And it just turned out I was, um, I kind of had the genes, I guess you would say. Um, and I was very, very competitive, very active kid. And I played basketball and baseball because those were the big sports in the area. No tennis. And then I think my mom saw a sign-up sheet for the town over for tennis. And she signed me up when I was, I think, six or seven years old. Went there, started hitting some balls, and my mom came to pick me up, and uh, I was still out there with the coach. Everyone else had left, and I just fell in love with the sport right out of the gate. And then I just felt like it was a good fit for me, honestly. I can't explain why, but it was almost like I saw my future ahead of me, like that day. It was like almost like a, it was bigger than me, whatever was happening that day. So I put my focus in the tennis. I still competed in the other sports because my dad was a coach and he was pushing me pretty hard. Let's just say the weekends weren't very good when we lost, you know, three hour drives afterwards, talking to me and explaining how I need to be tougher and let's go. And so it was a very competitive household, I can say, that I grew up in. And I think tennis was a way for me to create my own identity, you know, outside of what my dad did too. So maybe that had some reason behind it. So I moved to the first academy when I was eight years old. And it was because this kid just absolutely beat me up in a tournament. And I didn't even know. I was like, oh my God, this guy's so good. Found out he went to a little academy and I convinced my parents to let me go there. I don't know why they let me go there because I was eight years old. I think I was in third grade or something, second grade, third grade, whatever it was. So I go there and I was there for a year. And finally, my mom said, "That's he's too young. I got to pull him out. So she pulled me back into town. And that was when I was really struggling because I felt like I'd already left home and I already knew what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to, it was really hard for me to go back to the small town I grew up in. 
So my parents decided to surprise me, which was really cool. And they drove me up for my birthday, for my 10th birthday up to the US Open. And this was in 1988. And Wheelander, I think, won it that year. And I'm getting autographs and everything. And just happened to be that Nick Bolateri was standing there. And my mom said, that's that famous coach, right? Just kind of pointed over to him. She had seen him on TV somewhere. So my mom walked right up to him and just essentially just said to him like, hey, you know, my son loves a sport we don't know much about. We're in a really small town. He's super competitive. We don't know what to do with him. Like help, right? Help us. And Nick took our number down and said, hey, why don't you bring him down to the academy? I'm going to take a look at him. Two weeks later, we're driving down to Florida and I kind of auditioned for him, right? Here I am. Here's what I can do. And I guess the audition went really well. And he just kind of said some really nice things. He said, look, he's got the best hands I've ever seen. He makes the game look easy, but I need to keep him and I'll make him a champion. It was that simple. So went back home to our small town. I spent about a week trying to convince my parents to let me go down there. And they did. And just to be honest, that was 1980. I never went home again. And that was my journey, right? And I was able to play at some of the biggest tournaments in the world. I was doubles partners with Tommy Haas. I got to do things that most people can only dream of. Um, You know, got to walk through the gates of Wimbledon, compete, French Open, and all these cool things, right? But the tough thing about my career is, you know, if you read Nick Polipari's books, you'll probably leave chapters about me. It was called Making of a Champion with Kornikova and uh, and Tommy. You know, everybody, I was on 60 Minutes. I was on all these really cool things, right? To the point probably, you know, I was turning down TV appearances and maybe an autograph here or there, which is ridiculous, right? When you're young. But what was really tough for me is my career just essentially, the way I look at it is incomplete. I never got to maximize everything I put my heart and soul into. And not everybody's, I think, path is uh, aggressive or had to give up as much as I did. Everybody has a different journey. Some players got to stay home, have a coach nearby, but I just came from an area that there's just no way that would have been possible. So I did have to give up a lot. And from doing that and everything that I accomplished and you know, being with Nick every single day and having to prove to the whole, the tennis world, my talent every single day, I felt like, you know, this is going to happen, right? And unfortunately, it was a sequence of events that uh, ended my career. Some delayed me, but the one that really took me out was a, a major accident that I'm lucky I, I made it through. And after that accident, my hip was completely destroyed. It was uh, not fixable, right? And in tennis, you need to have a perfect body, you know, perfect. The mind has to be me there and everything. And I just realized early in my career that I was going to have to pivot and almost uh, let tennis go for a while, you know, and focus on other things. And pretty much that's been my journey from that moment that happened till now, creating Parkway and, and other companies and building businesses based on what I learned as a competitor and being on my own being raised by a village, having to survive and then thrive, having to pretty much learn about yourself early on in life, your weaknesses, your strengths, because we all have strengths and weaknesses, right? I just think that I had to learn about it pretty early on in life. And I used to be told all the time, you need to go to bed and do some soul searching, come back tomorrow and figure it out. You know, it's told to me numerous times. So I knew I was resilient. I knew I could move forward. But I can honestly say it was one of the hardest things I ever dealt with in my life to say goodbye to a sport I love so much. What do you think was the fundamental strength that got you through that difficult time of, you know, you that was your dream to be a tennis player and you had to transition out of it? That's a 
that's a tough pill to swallow for anyone. But what do you think was the strength that you had already in you that got you through that next phase? Yeah. Now that I'm 46 years old, you know, you always think back, how did you get through it? I think ultimately I knew I needed to stay busy. So I didn't have to think about as much. Right. So get active. That's the first step. And then also I felt like I was letting everyone down, including myself. And that's your first reaction. All everyone really believed in me, coaches, team, you know, you felt like you're just like letting down a whole city in, in some ways, right? Just letting everyone down. So I think it was a, I don't know if I'm going to figure this out, but I'm, I'm just going to keep pushing forward and see where I go, like a new journey, right? And the way I looked at it was I sacrificed before, you know, I had to go through the process. Things don't happen overnight. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to go back to being a 10-year-old kid in the business world and just try to get to another Wimbledon. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to try to get there, right? And I think my background, my childhood prepared me for that because, you know, my childhood wasn't, uh, don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. It was pretty much executed, you know? That's what I was trained to do. And the reason why Nick liked me so much is because he used to say when the lights came on, Greg shows up, you know? He always could count on me to show up. And I was pretty good at that. But I also remember what he told me. I wasn't just an academy kid living in the academy. I was his favorite, probably arguably his favorite student of all time. And he used to tell everyone, you know, Greg's going to be big in whatever he does. He would tell every single person we met. And I think I just remember that. I'm like, okay, you know, a lot of people believe in you, Greg. Now let's see what you're made of, you know, stop complaining, you know, stop licking your wounds, no tears. And what I did for myself, for my own mental health, just to be honest, is I stayed away from tennis. I felt like if I was going to go back into the tennis world, it was going to be too hard for me. And that's not fair, right, to myself. So I stayed away from tennis. I didn't go to the Grand Slams. People, Tommy, my best friend, my doubles partner, Tommy Howe, is inviting me here or there because he wants to see me. And I said, Tommy, I can't do it. I said, just hang in there with me. I got to do something different here. And I'll come back. And I'll come back stronger. But I'm, right now, I'm... I'm not, I'm not strong enough to, you know, to be in that world. So I separated myself and I kind of challenged myself and said, Hey, let's see, let's see what else I'm capable of in life. Instead of just, you know, tennis, you know, it's pretty, obviously tennis is really hard and you got these talents and you have to think through everything, but it doesn't allow you to think outside of tennis because it's so consuming, right? You're not uh, diving into politics or anything like that. Cause you're really just like trying to recover from the match get ready for the next day. So now I had that all off my plate. It's like, I'm not doing that anymore. So now my mind can start thinking about other things. And I realized that I can get excited about other things besides tennis. Well, let's go there. So now you're forced to find your way in the world outside of tennis. How did you find your way to finance? And what talents, if any, do you think that had applied to the courts also assisted you in becoming a successful financier? Yeah, I think... When I started getting into the business world, I realized that um, I was good with people. And for some reason, people really trusted me to do things. And then when someone asked me to do something, I made sure it got done ahead of time. I made, met deadlines. I realized I could do that over and over again for long periods of time. So not just like, you know, do it for a month and then take off for two weeks. I would do it for like the year straight and I wouldn't even take a day off. Right. And I enjoyed executing and executing and building on that momentum. And then you start building a reputation of, you know, Greg kind of, this is a guy you can trust, right? If you're able to keep executing, 
trust is built. And so I think I started building this trust in the business world the same way I built trust in the sports world by people betting on you, right? A coach has to bet on you based on your performance, based on your personality, based on where they think you're going. And I took the same approach in business. And then because I I do uh, build deep relationships with people, I definitely met the right people at the right time, if that makes sense. And what really was powerful for me is when I met a couple people, Jesse Coors Blankenship, my partner at Parkway Venture Capital, met him in Los Angeles. And after that, joining Young President's organization was really powerful for me. I qualified, probably barely qualified back then. I was pretty young. And the people I met in YPO through Forum and through events sort of opened up, cracked some doors open for me that otherwise I wouldn't even know there's a door to crack open. So I think hard work, focus, long runs, and I just dedicated my 20s essentially to just uh, work and building, kind of building my career. And by doing that, I think the harder you work, the more you want something, the more you can manifest it. And and I was always told, you seize the moment. You work hard in tennis. You don't really don't get many benefits through the years. It's just like hard work, hard work, sweat, blood, sweat, and tears, what they call it. And then eventually you wake up one day and there's a moment. You just got to grab it, right? You got to execute. And I've, I treated it the same way in business. I'm like, I know people have a leg up on me because you know they came from a super wealthy family and they've got like partners that are got billions and stuff. But I said, if I can just do this for long enough, eventually the playing field is going to be level. And that's what I wanted. I want a level playing field in the business world where I could actually showcase you know, what I could do. And uh, yeah, meeting Jesse was amazing. He was in college. And I recognized how brilliant he was, and we became really close friends. And fortunately, that deep connections that I that I like to build, when he had his first startup or he wanted to do a startup, I was the first person he called. And that was like a huge moment because that company that we partnered up on was one of the earliest AI companies. And that company now over 20% of the world's products are designed with the software that we took to market. So that was a really big deal. And that's not something that I ever thought was possible, but it was because I put myself out there and worked hard and networked and just tried to, like an artist, you're trying to find yourself you know, out there. And now I realize that maybe what Nick was saying is there was more to me than just hitting a tennis ball. And fortunately, he, was, uh, he recognized that before I did. How did you eventually make your way to uh, Winter Park to found uh, co-found Parkway? And what would you say are the unique qualities that set Parkway apart from its peers? Sure. Yeah. So Parkway, you know, we had the startup in New York. And after that, Jesse and I, we decided to start Parkway. We thought we were going to have a real edge, you know, because we had such an amazing story. And because our technology was kind of part of this fourth wave that you see today. You know, you have chat and all these different companies, but Jesse was probably one of the earliest people talking about this. This is back in 2010, you know, you can imagine at Columbia University. So the story is really important, I think. What's your story as a startup, as a founder? How do you fit within the world today and where it's going? And so in my mind, I said, okay, we can do something really great here. We can support the companies 
And we want to find companies that have, have a similar DNA to the company that we started. And that's deep tech companies. And we're investing in the transformation of like global industry across all sectors is a good way to look at it. So it's the way we saw it even back in 2010 to 2013 is that AI was going to disrupt every industry, which you're seeing today. And not just disrupt, really open up new market territory in sectors. So, and also open up new sectors that didn't exist yesterday. So a good example of that would be, let's say a company we led last year, it was, it was the most prominent spin out in Google history with Eric Schmidt and Jack Hitter is called Sandbox AQ. It's a $500 million round that Parkway led. We couldn't have led that round if we didn't have our story, our history, our network. There's a lot of reasons why we led that round. We're very proud of that. The reason why that company's around is because cybersecurity is now defenseless. It cannot defend quantum attacks. Quantum technology, 270 million times more powerful than like the supercomputer today, if you have a quantum computer. Just to give you an example of how powerful quantum is. So what happened was the US government essentially went to Google and said that early quantum technology was stealing their data the real national security risk. Google fortunately created internally with Sergey a team and started creating algorithms and early defenses for these quantum attacks. And then of course you want to bring it out to the world because you and I, just everyone doesn't know this is happening. Uh, financial institutions, every smartphone needs to be protected with this, right? And you think about cybersecurity came around during the computer ages, right? It was essentially like, you know, you have your first issues and the computers are crashing. They have to create ways to defend and nothing's, it's been advanced, but now we're at a point now where without post-quantum cryptography, which is the new cybersecurity defense, we're defenseless, right? So about every 30 or 40 years, these things happen. So that's what we're investing in. If it wasn't for quantum, we, A, we wouldn't have these issues, but also Sandbox AQ wouldn't be here today protecting the world's most you know precious data. That's what we invest in. We invest in companies that weren't around two or three or five years ago. And it's the advancements of technologies like AI, quantum, and others. We're looking for a new sector or a sector that's going to accelerate because of these advancements. And really, we're product-focused as well. So I don't want to go too far into the companies, you know, everything. But, you know, you think about X-ray, X-ray has always been kind of an indoor cat, right? You have that lead line vest and your lead line room and you're doing X-rays. But because of the advancements in AI and other technologies, it's now an outdoor cat. And we invested in a company that's taken that and using these technologies. And now you can take an X-ray and there's really no radiation because it self-calibrates and emits the exact perfect amount of radiation for every X-ray for children for uh, women who want to be, you know, in um, who want to be uh, in the sector, who want to be orthopedic surgeons, it's a real risk, right? Because over time, that cancer and other uh, issues, long term or pregnancy issues. So this has not happened in sixty years. You have the C arm, big C arm in the um, in the X ray rooms, but because of technology, you now have a handheld ten or eleven pound wireless X ray that you can take anywhere. You can take into the villages of Africa. It diagnoses tuberculosis on the spot. So imagine vaccine-level care around the world because of advancements of AI. That's exciting. And what we love about it is it's a $200 billion market, and now it is a 
billion dollar market because of this. So again, it shows you that because that's our strategy is because of AI and other technologies, we're able to get into sectors and invest in this fourth wave that wouldn't have been possible a few years ago. Greg Hill joining us. Next, more of his investment insight as Florida Business Minds continues. People's Gas, working with businesses across Florida to lower energy usage and costs with efficient natural gas. Get cash back energy conservation rebates when you install new natural gas equipment. Learn more at peoplesgas.com slash biz rebates. Are there particular steps that you and Jesse take to evaluate the market trends and determine which industries or sectors are ripe for investment? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things about Parkway, sort of our reputation. We did the lead two out of the three biggest deals of the year. We're kind of like a young Sequoia. We used to be called the most prominent emerging VC firm in the world, but I've been told lately that we're no longer emerging, which I find I don't agree with. They say we're emerged. And Jesse and I, we're looking six months, a year out, you know, in terms of what we want to invest in. And we're also looking five or 10 years out what the future is going to look like. So we can't wait for it to come to us. We have to go out and find it through our network. And it comes from our our founders. It comes from obviously our network. It comes from our investors. I mean, we're looking for information everywhere we can find it. I'll give you an example of how quick these deals occur. We just led around in a company called Figure AI. And it's in the humanoid, generalized humanoid robotic space. There's two big players in that space, Figure and Optimus, which is Elon Musk's creation. And Optimus is part of Tesla. What's so cool about this is it's the largest market in the world, 42 trillion. And Elon Musk has been talking to his Tesla board and talking to the world saying that the majority of Tesla's long-term value is going to be an Optimus because these robots are going to go into 3PL as soon as next year. And they're going to be doing mundane tasks, repeatable tasks, you know, things that people, A, don't want to do, and there's high retention, uh, you know, rates in that space. So we got a phone call from the founder, Brett Adcock, who created Archer Aviation. And it just turns out that he was, we knew him 10 years ago when he started his first company, Vettery, in an incubator in New York when we created Frustum. And we were the two, there was like 250 startups there. And we were the only two that were successes out of this incubator. It was Frustum and it was Vettery. He gave us a call and said, you know, the big firms like Andreessen and all of them want to lead us around. I want to show you what's happening. We went out there and we were able to compete for a couple months. And the Sandbox AQ people, you know, spoke on our behalf and we landed the deal. And we led the round. But this is another space that just occurred. Like it hasn't been around a long time and you have G and all these players and it. it's a brand new sector, the largest market in history. And people are, companies like ours are signing eight, $10 billion deals as we speak with the biggest companies in the world. Millions of humanoids are going into the space. And once they go into 3PL, data collection is really important to us because that's very proprietary. You can't find this data anywhere. It's not like you can Google it, right? And find out you know, find out how to use this data and train a neural links and simulate this, right? You have to go collect it commercially or with Tesla, they're going to do it. Their optimist is going to collect that data 
by building Teslas, right, in the factory. So we're super excited about it because there's a huge moat in this industry. There's only going to be three or four groups to be able to pull this off. But you can imagine like you have chat GTP, you see how they went from, I think it was 1 billion to 90 billion in a year and a half, you know, evaluation. That's what's happening with this space. Some of the biggest companies in the world, if not the one or the two biggest companies in the world are going to come out of this space in the next, you know, five or 10 years. That's what you saw with Tesla. You saw a company, brand new space, electrical vehicles in terms of mass production. And then you fast forward seven, eight years later, and it's a trillion dollar company, right? And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for what's the next big trend? Where's the world going? We knew this was going to happen. We just didn't know who was going to pull it off. And it, it happens to be half the Boston Dynamics team is, is uh, at figure, you know, some of the greatest minds, you have to have the perfect hand person, you know, the perfect group building the actuator, which is very proprietary. You can't get by that off the shelf. And a humanoid robot has a thousand parts. So it's very complicated, the hardware side. And then the software side is just now advanced enough to be able to put it all together. It's almost like a perfect stew. When you eat it, if there's one recipe off, you're kind of like, whoa, you know, what's wrong with that? What did I just eat? That's the same with this space. Everything had to come together. It could be one missing part. And Brett is the guy doing it. He's a huge star in Silicon Valley. Everyone sort of knows about him. And we're very fortunate that our network came through for us in uh, that deal. So I would look at it like for real estate folks who are, if anyone, real estate off-market deals, you know, you hear about that. There's things you see on MLS and you wonder, why is it still on MLS? Like it's picked over. The hot stuff in VC, you never hear about. It doesn't exist. And by the time you hear about it, you're either too late to the game, the deal is already over. So you got to be stay really close in the market, like constantly be collaborating. And the market also needs to speak for you. So when you're not hanging around the hoop, you're getting that inbound from the market saying, hey, have you heard about this? I just met with Elon. He's starting a new startup and he's looking for this. Here, you know, contact him. And that's how we've gotten our best deals, just being in the right place at the right time and uh, bringing in really good financial partners. The more powerful financial partners we have in terms of not just money, but influence, industry leaders. I mean, we have presidents and CEOs of Fortune 500 companies like that all matters as we move forward, because you never know when their contacts are going to come through for us. What's interesting is among the industries, you know, AI is one you identified as having great promise, simulation being another both of those are in research and advances here in Central Florida. Do you see any sectors or industries that you think have the most promise for innovation and investment here in our region? And does Parkway hold uh, currently any Central Florida firms in its portfolio? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, the space industry is really a big deal here, right? With Cape Canaveral. Actually, uh, green hydrogen, you know, there's some advancements on the space coast for that. We've looked into that. Currently, Parkway does not hold a central Florida company as a portco. We've looked at a few. Doesn't mean we're not going to have one. I'm sure we will. We're not really, we don't really care about region. We look at the deal first and wherever they land or where they're located is fine. It's just kind of how it works. I think we invested in a company last year. It was called Persephone Climate Accounting, and they didn't even have a headquarters yet. We had no idea. And they landed in Phoenix, right? Arizona. So I think central Florida... There's been some great companies that have come out. Like recently, I think it was uh, 
there was one company that got to a billion dollar valuation here. And uh, you have EY, you know, and, and companies like that. I think the Space Coast is powerful because you have SpaceX over there and others, United Alliance and them. And that's just going to bring opportunities, you know, because they're over there. I would say there's certain companies that have to be in certain regions, to be honest. There's a talent pool for certain companies because we are so deep tech. You have to be in certain regions for some of the companies we invest in, not all. So I would say Central Florida is definitely a target for us. I think having a presence here in Central Florida is great. I mean, we're in Manhattan and Central Florida are our offices because if we do invest in a Florida company or Central Florida company, that's going to be better for the company and us, right? We can connect a lot more. What I would like to see in Central Florida is more understanding of VC and private equity. I think that could be advanced because if a startup does start here in Central Florida, the more people to understand what they're doing, what they're trying to accomplish, the better. They get more support. And I think that's something that uh, you know maybe Parkway can help because if you ever do get involved with Parkway, it doesn't have to be as an investor. It could be an advisor or just get to know us. You learn the industry and then you become more confident once you learn the industry, right? A lot of people say, I don't want to invest in that or I don't want to get involved in that because that's not my that's not my day-to-day, right? And if more people, you know, understood how it works, and essentially if it wasn't for venture capital, every company you see in the world, including the one that's protecting us right now and the protecting the US government, wouldn't exist. The world would be a very different place. And US is the most innovative country in the world. There's no one that comes close, honestly, besides China is definitely a big push. But it's because we have people that really understand that these founders need to be supported because they can't do it themselves, right? The first-time founders, they're brilliant minds. I mean, even Bezos had to get a, Jeff Bezos had to get a, uh, I think he had to get a loan from his wife's parents to start Amazon. I mean, and then after that, he went to the VC community, right? So um, Steve Jobs, you heard the story, he's in his parents' house and a VC shows up like me, you know? shows up and they negotiate a deal right there. And if it wasn't for that deal, he he was having a hard time finding funding, right? And Apple wouldn't have been created. So venture capital is one of the most, it's like the backbone of the economy. Uh, without innovation, we're just a service industry in this country. So it's really important that we keep going and uh, and push in this area because um, we're, we're very heavy in real estate in Central Florida and others or some other industries. But if you could put together real estate deals, they're very complicated, some of them. VC deals are not much different. You're looking for good deals. You're, you're looking for, instead of an asset, you're looking for the value of the IP. You know, how valuable is this company if it doesn't scale? What are the comps? Just like real estate, right? Let's look at the comps. How much money does it need? How long do I have to hold it? What's the team look like? Um, who's the leader? What's the culture? And then there's the bank, right? And the bank is essentially us, right? We're kind of like the bank. We come in and we put structure around it. We make sure the governance is proper. And I think if you want to ask what our edge is, I think one of the biggest edges we have in the space and why we've been successful, I don't know if any other VC will ever in the world can say this at this particular time, unless they're early on, is Parkway has never had a loss in VC. And we've never even had a down round. And that was my goal when we started. I set a really high standard. And I, I wanted to go away from the power law kind of route, which is 
spread your money out amongst hundreds of companies and just average it out and bring back an average return to investors. What I wanted to do was lead every round, get on the board and support the company as if I was sort of a, you know, like a founder or closer to the company than a VC relationship. By doing that, we have situations like with Figure or Oxos or Sandbox, we're able to get really close with the team. And I think that brings us closer to the industry and the fourth wave what's happening. We're not a passenger, like a backseat passenger or not even a passenger in the car. We kind of feel like we're in the front seat with them. And it really has helped grow the business. And the reason why we did this too, as I thought of myself, if I was an investor, which I am, I'm a big investor in Parkway, what would I want to see to invest to make me sleep well at night? And this is what I came up with, the strategy back in 2019. I was sitting in New York on the Hudson at the Standard Hotel with Jesse, my partner, and I just white papered it. You know, I said, this is what we're going to do. And we're never going to chase. We're going to manage every single round. And our due diligence is going to be unbelievable. And we're going to make sure that when we get in this deal, we know everything. And I don't want to have a mess. And I said, we're going to do it on the first deal, right out of the gate. And that's what we've done. And I think not chasing deals in the hot times and then you know, doing the same strategy, even when it's a slowdown, it's been really good for us. Okay. Well, one final question. Do you still find time and opportunities for tennis? And what mm-hmm. does a typical tennis match look like for you now? Yeah, it's interesting. So just quickly, you know, because my my hip was so messed up, I should have had a hip replacement. I told the doctor I didn't want it back in the day. I was in a lot of pain for a lot of years. It was really horrible. Fortunately, science started picking up and I was able to do like PRP and stem cell for many years. It took me about 10 or 15 years, but I was able to sort of regenerate my hip enough that I can play. So a lot of people say, how can you play after such an accident like that? And that's, to be honest, that's that's exactly what I did. So now I play tennis to give me energy to stay healthy. I love the sport. I go out maybe once a week. And if I play twice a week, that's the max I can play. I can't push past that because uh, it's a little bit hard on my hip. But I still run around like you probably wouldn't know I had any accent back in the day. I still enjoy it. And uh, I have a charity too called Matchpoint Impact with Tommy Haas. We started it about six years ago. And essentially all what it is is we're just... We're trying to get kids on the court and playing every single day to stay out of trouble, obviously. And also some of these kids are really good and it's a good way to get into college, the first generation. And the way I look at it is tennis didn't have to be everything in my life. It was a vehicle to get me to open up doors that otherwise wouldn't have opened up for me. And I want that to happen for other kids as well, because you never know, it could be another Serena Williams that comes out of there or another Tommy Haas or something like that, right? But you keep them coming out on the court, we fund that, and then we support them getting into college and hopefully staying in college. And uh, all it takes is one generation, right, to change everything, you know, for families. And I can't think of a better sport than tennis. There's a lot of scholarships, opportunity, and it's a healthy sport you can play your whole life, which is great. The friendships you make, and it teaches you about how to compete by yourself. You still got to have a team, coach and everything, but you have to figure things out on your own. Um, and you don't have a team to back you up. If you have a bad day, you lose, right? You have to accept that. There's nowhere to look. You know, you're looking around. It's like, oh my God, it's me. So that's really important to me, giving back, doing that. But I will always play tennis, always be around it. Some of our biggest supporters are Hall of Famers in tennis. 
they look at me as one of their own, which is good on the tennis court, but they realize that they were playing tennis when I was learning all this stuff. So they, they trust me, which is great. So everything's come full circle. I'll go to the slams now. I have no issues. I'll be perfectly honest. If I have to go back, I wouldn't change a thing that happened in my life, including the accident, including, um, I mean, honestly, everything. I met my wife. I have three kids. Parkway wouldn't have existed. And I think I think what we're doing at Parkway is, is pretty special. And it's kind of like my legacy, you know, outside of tennis. I very much appreciate, uh, Greg, again, you taking the time today to share. I mean, your story is remarkable. And I appreciate you bringing it full circle and sharing your insight with our uh, listeners. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for downloading Florida Business Minds, presented by the Business Journals of Florida. Brought to you by Tico People's Gas at the heart of Florida's energy.